into a small apartment uh, on 3rd Street in the, the Southern California town of Santa Monica. And uh, Charles and Carol, they, they were kind of like a quiet duo. Uh, for the most part, they kept to themselves, pretty much just kind of hanging out in, in their apartment uh, during the day and even during the evening. But occasionally they would venture out, and uh, like their neighbors, uh, they would do some of the things that were in the neighborhood. They would uh, shop at a little farmer's market that was down the street from them. Uh, there was a restaurant that they used to frequent called Michael's uh, that they, they liked to go to. Uh, on the evenings, they would slip out to uh, Palisades Park that overlooks the Pacific Coast Highway, and they would just kind of enjoy, I was going to say enjoy the fresh air, but I lived in Los Angeles for a couple of years. There's no such thing as fresh air in Los Angeles. Uh, enjoy the brown haze, basically, is what they were doing. And, uh, and then on, on a couple occasions, uh, they would sneak away from Santa Monica. They would travel down to, to Las Vegas uh, to play the slots, or they'd go to Tijuana and uh, pick up some in inexpensive Mexican, or <laughs> not an inexpensive Mexican, that would be embarrassing. They, they'd pick up inexpensive medicine is what they would pick up there. Uh, so in a lot of ways, they were kind of like their neighbors, but they were sort of homebodies. But unlike their neighbors, the, the Gascos, they possessed a secret sin that would remain hidden for the 15 years that they lived there in Santa Monica. And it was hidden until June 12, 2011, when an undercover team of FBI agents lured Charles out of his home and they arrested him. And the reason that they arrested him is his name wasn't Charles. His name was Whitey uh, Bulger, Whitey Bulger, and uh, he was the number one fugitive on the FBI's most wanted list. He was wanted for not just one murder, not just two murders, but 19 murders that began in the 1970s and went through the 1980s. And for 15 years, this man, he lived in the shadows, occasionally uh, daring to step out into the light, believing that his sins would never, ever find him out. Yet he was mistaken. And so it is for you and me, when we deceive ourselves in the thinking that we can somehow hide our sins, not simply from others, but ultimately from God. And uh, this morning, as we resume our study uh, through the last uh, couple books of the book of Genesis and look at the descendants of Abraham, we're going to see the great lengths that God goes to, to to not only expose our sin that is hidden, but also to show us extravagant grace uh, through as he allows us to repent and ultimately be healed of that sin. So if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone, uh, make your way to Genesis chapter 33. Uh, if you need a Bible, there's plenty of Bibles on the tables around the room. Please feel free uh, to get up and grab one. Uh, we're going to start off by just reading the first 10 verses, and then through the balance of the message, we'll uh, make our way through the, the balance of the verses. So Genesis chapter 43, verses 1 to 10, and if you're able to stand, if you would do so, please, in honor of God's word. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food, 
But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You not, shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you, will send your, uh, if you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? And they replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, it has been uh, two months since we had spent time uh, working our way through the, the book of Genesis. We took a break, obviously, uh, for Thanksgiving and the Advent season and a little bit of uh, the new year. So, so what I want to do is I, I want to take maybe the next five or ten minutes and just kind of do a little review, kind of bring us back up to speed. Uh, we get lots of new people here uh, all the time, and so this will kind of bring you up to speed about where we're at here. Uh, the primary focus of the final chapters of the book of Genesis is about a man by the name of Joseph. And he and his 11 brothers and his one sister uh, were conceived by uh, a guy by the name of Jacob uh, to his two wives and, and two maidservants. So basically, you got all these kids, and there are four different women that this guy has had uh, children with. And Joseph and his younger brother and his only full brother, Benjamin, were the youngest uh, of Jacob's children. So there were, were 10 brothers that were older than him and a sister that were older than him, and then you had Jacob and then you had Benjamin. And uh, Jacob and, uh, and uh, Joseph and, and Benjamin, I should say, and Joseph and Benjamin were born to Jacob's favorite wife. Her name was Rachel, and she gave, uh, while she's given birth to him, Benjamin, she, she died. And because Joseph was the firstborn child of Rachel, much older than his little brother Benjamin, Joseph has a special place in his father Jacob's heart. And Jacob is not shy about letting the balance of the kids know who his favorite child is. And if any of you are in a large family and there was a favorite child, you know that's a recipe for disaster. Uh, but that's what uh, Jacob, uh, or Jacob did to his family. And uh, because of Jacob's favoritism, uh, it caused jealousy amongst all the other brothers. So much jealousy that they sold Joseph into slavery and then they lied to their dad, Jacob, uh, telling him that a fierce animal had devoured his favorite son. And as Jacob is grieving his son's apparent death, Joseph is actually uh, had been sold into slavery and now is getting resold into new slavery with the Egyptians. And uh, while he is in Egypt through a series of twists and turns over the course of 20 years, uh, many of those twists and turns crazy painful. 
uh, like being tossed into prison for a false accusation of rape, Joseph, against all odds, ends up rising to be the number two man in all of Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh. And all the while, Joseph's ten brothers continue on their lives knowing uh, full well that their brother could be alive somewhere in the world. So they're going through life for 20 years knowing that their brother is probably somewhere. Yet they appear perfectly content knowing that they've betrayed their brother and for two decades have deceived their heartbroken father and youngest brother. Now, I want you to ponder that for just a moment. What must that be like? Living a horrific lie for the last 20 years. Possessing a, a deep secret that you can't possibly allow to be revealed. Thinking to ourselves, I, I've already hurt my dad with my lie. How much more hurt will come to my dad if the truth ultimately comes out? But what makes it worse is that we're not alone in this. There are other people who have known what has happened. There, there are other people that were complicit in this thing. What happens if one of those gets a conscience and decides that they're going to tell the truth? What happens if, if someone else exposes our sin? And as such, uh, not only is our relationship with our dad messed up, but a relationship with all those other brothers, all those other people who know about our hidden sin, but who are hiding it themselves, that relationship is messed up also. It's a bad place to be. And the psalmist speaks about the pain of sin when he says this. For I am, my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester. Why? Because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. You see, we know that those words are true. We know that, that living with, with hidden sin brings brokenness and pain and suffering and guilt and depression and alienation. But there are some of us who will ultimately they'll object and, and, and basically they'll say to the, you know, uh, yeah, I got hidden sin, but it doesn't bother me. I'm living just fine. Yet deep down inside, they and we know that things aren't fine. We know that there's pain and regret. And, and, and what happens when we have pain and regret and nobody knows about it? Somehow we got to figure out a, a way to, to medicate that, to make it go away. So, so we turn to alcohol or, or drugs or, or food or some other kind of illicit sexual activity. Uh, some of us cover our pain by seemingly good things. We, we work super hard or we exercise super hard or we get crazy involved with a hobby. Some of us try to avoid the pain by distancing ourselves from others or denying it. But regardless of what we do, we don't find freedom 
until the sin is not only revealed, but ultimately repented of. And that, brothers and sisters, that is exactly where Joseph and his brothers are. They are trapped in hidden sin, and they are living in denial. But their sin is not hidden from everyone. You see, God is aware of their sin. The Bible testifies to this all over the place, but I'll just give you one. Proverbs 15 says this, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the good and, or the evil and on the good. That's the problem with, with, with an, an all-present, all-knowing, all-powerful God who happens to be infinite. Being infinite means that, that he can be infinitely aware of every one of our lives. His full attention can be put on us at all times. He goes everywhere. He knows everything. He doesn't miss a single thing. And for God, with these guys, he knew their jealousy. He saw them sell Joseph into slavery. God heard them lie to their father. Yet he is not content to allow them to be trapped in hidden sin. So what God does is he does something remarkable. God sends a severe famine throughout the entire Middle East. And through a, a series of, of God-ordained events, Joseph had wisely, as the number two guy of Egypt, in the preceding seven years of plenty, he had stored up vast reserves of grain in Egypt. But Jacob and his family who were living in the promised land, who were living in Canaan, who were, who were living in, near, in the area of what is now the nation of Israel, their family hadn't been able to put anything away. They're starving in the promised land. And Jacob learns that there's abundant food stores in, in Egypt, so he sends his ten oldest sons, all of Joseph's brothers except for one, to Egypt to buy food. But he keeps the youngest guy back in Canaan, Benjamin, because he doesn't want anything bad to happen to his uh, second child from Rachel because he, he believes he's lost the first child from Rachel. Now, once they get into Egypt, the brothers find themselves in the presence of Joseph, yet they don't know that it's their brother. I mean, 20 years have gone by. Uh, they don't recognize him. But he certainly recognizes them but Jacob doesn't reveal his, or Joseph doesn't reveal his identity. And instead he questions them about who they are, where they came from, what they are up to. And the brothers say that they're from Canaan, that they had 12 brothers, that one had died, which they didn't know they're actually speaking to him, and uh, that the youngest one was left behind. At this point, Joseph, now knowing that his, his youngest brother is alive and doing well, that dad is still alive, he decides that he's going to accuse these ten brothers of being spies, and he tosses them into prison. And he lets them stew in prison for a couple days, specifically three days, and then he brings them out of prison and says, you know what, I'm going to give you the opportunity to prove that you're not spies. And, and what I want you to do is I want you to go back home, and I want you to get your younger brother, and I want you to bring him back with you. Because I don't think you have another bro younger brother. I don't think you're even from where you say you're from. 
So let's have you prove yourself. And just to make sure that you actually come back, I'm going to keep one of you as collateral. And so uh, he decides he's going to keep this brother by the name of, uh, uh, of Simeon. And uh, so then what happens out of that is that, that ultimately the brothers are like, wow, we have really done something bad. And this is the very first thing that has to happen when you and I want to, to flee from hidden sin, when we want to get away from our hid, hidden sin, and it's that we have to admit that, that uh, we ourselves have actually sinned. We've got to tell the truth ultimately to ourselves. That's what happens to Joseph's brothers. Look here at verses 21 and 22. They said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we didn't listen that is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. You see, the first step in being freed from hidden sin is to actually admit to yourself that you have sinned. And brothers and sisters, we're a messed up bunch. We deceive ourselves so incredibly easily. We're quick to convince ourselves that, that the sin that we're into really isn't sin. We make up all kinds of excuses. We try to make the Bible say things that it doesn't say, doing exactly what Isaiah warns us in, in chapter 5. He says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wiser in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. You see, sin, and especially hidden sin, keeps us in bondage. And the first step to freedom is to stop deceiving ourselves and admit to ourselves, not to other people yet, but to ourselves, that what I'm doing right now, what I did in the past, is actually sin. And that's exactly what Joseph's brothers do. They do the first step. So, so Joseph sends them back to the promised land to get grain, and he gives them grain, he sells them grain, and they go back without their brother Simeon, who now is cooling his jets uh, in the Egyptian jail. Now, when they get home, they tell their dad Jacob what happened and inform them in order to get him, that in order to get Simeon back, they need to return to Egypt with Benjamin. Now, Jacob, he's hot. He's like, what is up with you guys? You are losing brothers left and right. Okay, and now you want me to take your littlest brother and entrust him to you guys? You are completely utterly out of your mind. I am not going to do that. He, Benjamin is not going with, he's not going with you to Egypt. He, he's not going to, to you to the corner store. You know, he's not going to you anywhere. I'm not entrusting this guy to you clowns at all. And uh, Jacob, he, he is clearly familiar with the, the great United States Marine Corps theologian, Gomer Pyle. 
Some of you will remember Gomer Pyle if you're old like me, but, but Gomer had this saying. He would say, uh, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And that's where J Jacob's like, hey, you did this once, man, and I actually let you do this a second time. You've lost two brothers. Now, there is no way the third, I'm not going to trust anyone with you. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 43 and what we read together at the start. Uh, now, I, I know that took a couple minutes, but I wanted to see what God's doing in this section of Scripture because God is showing you and me the great extent that he is going to go to, to to free us from hidden sin. And that continues in chapter 43. And as chapter 43 starts off, Jacob still is not budging. There's no way that he is going to go with his plan and let Benjamin go to Egypt. And, and the brothers are saying, look, you don't get Simeon back without Benjamin. And, and Jacob is saying, you don't get Benjamin. And so they're at this impasse. They're stuck. But that doesn't stop God. Look at what God does. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. What happens here? God, in order to make all of this work, God simply continues the famine. There's no more food. The guys, everybody eats all of the food that's come down from Egypt, and there is nothing like a little starvation to get people working together. And as I was reading this, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I have been crazy frustrated uh, with Washington, D.C. for probably the past 20 years, maybe the past 30 years, I don't know. But I mean, the, the folks down there can't seem to get along. So as I was reading this, I came up with a great idea. Why don't you take all 435 uh, of the guys in the House of Representatives and the senators and, and President Trump and put them all in the, in the Capitol building, lock the doors with no food, and, and just say, hey, until you start getting along, you go hungry. I mean, at, at some point, these guys are going to work out their problems. I mean, it seems like it worked for Jacob. And so these guys, they go back and forth, uh, Jacob and his sons, and, and then finally Judah... The, the fourth oldest son does something to show that, you know what, not only have I admitted to myself that I have sinned, but you know what, I'm going to start taking responsibility in my life. Look at what happens. And it says, and Judas said to Israel, his father, that, that's uh, Jacob is Israel, it's the same name, send the boy with me and we will arise and uh, go, that we may live and not die, both you, both we and you and our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. You see, Judah takes personal responsibility for protecting Benjamin. No other brother has done this to that point. As a matter of fact, Reuben, who happens to be uh, the oldest one, and you would think that he was the most responsible. Some of you who have many kids in your family are like, yeah, I know the oldest one. They're not responsible at all. Uh, but you would think he would have the most responsibility. Well, back at the end of chapter 42, uh, when, Jacob, when, he's, uh, when Reuben's making the case for Benjamin to get sent back to Egypt, he says to Jacob, you know what? 
let me have this kid, and uh, if I don't come back with Benjamin, you can kill my two boys. Really? That's your idea? If I don't do what I'm supposed to do, kill Mike and John? That's not responsibility. Now, if you and I want to know if we're actually changing as it relates to the hidden sin in our lives, the fact that we begin to start taking personal responsibility for things is a pretty good sign. And after their little stay in the Egyptian jail, the brothers finally take responsibility as a group regarding their sin against Joseph. But now Judah is taking his own personal responsibility. So let's look at what happens next. Let's look at the next couple of verses, 11 to 14. And then their father Israel, Jacob, said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also with you your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. So Jacob basically relents. It's a no-win situation. You either starve to death or you risk losing your youngest son. Uh, so he sends them on their way to Egypt with Benjamin. But he doesn't send them by themselves. He, he sends double the portion of money that's needed to buy grain. Uh, one half of the new money was designed to buy the new grain. The other half of the money was to pay for the grain the guys had originally gotten. Because what had happened was they paid for it, but when they got back home and they poured out the grain out of their bags, Joseph had returned all of the money that they had bought. So they're thinking, like, what in the world happened? They're going to think that we stole this grain. And how did this money get back in our sacks? And we'll see what happens with that in just a moment. But, but Jacob sends something else. He doesn't just send money. He sends something unexpected. He sends them gifts uh, to the governor of Egypt. He doesn't know that that's his long-lost son, Joseph. And these gifts, they're things that are not native to Egypt. They're stuff that you can't get in Egypt. It's like if you're living in in uh, Los Angeles, you can't get Middlesworth barbecue chips there, okay? That's not possible. You got to have them shipped out to you, all right? So he sends them things that, that, uh, that you can't get in Egypt that are native to the, the promised land, things like pistachio nuts and almonds. And, and if you think about this, this is a huge sacrifice because what? They're in the midst of a famine, and this is food, and so he's sending food along. So uh, let's keep going. What happens here next in the next couple of verses, 15 to, to 23? So the men took this present. They took double the money with them and Benjamin. And they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, bring the men into my house, slaughter an animal, make it ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he might assault us. 
and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. And so they went up to the steward of, the house, of Joseph's house and they spoke with him at the door of the house and they said, oh my Lord, when we came down the first time to buy food and when we came to the lodging place where we opened our sacks, in other words, when we got home, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sacks, our money in full weight. So we brought it again with us and we brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. And the man replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Now, do you see the turn of events that's happened here? What happened the first time the brothers showed up in Egypt? The dudes, they're thrown into jail. What's happening now? They're beginning to experience grace. Now, I want you to, to see how this plays out. The first thing that happens is Joseph tells his, his steward to, to take the, his brothers to his house and make them, to a meal, make them a meal. Now, the brothers are like, this cannot be good. Nobody ever gets invited to, to the king's house. And a lot of times, the, the prisons were attached to, right by the, the, the king's house. Like, this, is, this is very, very bad. They think that Joseph's going to take their stuff, going to ultimately make them slaves. So the brothers, they, they get proactive. They, they came the first time. They were on the defensive. Now they're on the offensive. So as soon as they get to the house, they're like, hey, we've got we to gotta deal with this money thing. I, I mean, they, I, certainly these guys, they, they know that they didn't get paid. We've got to make the, this right. And uh, so they decide, you know, this is the best time to, to deal with this. Let's, let's deal with this before Joseph even, or, you know, the, the governor even gets here. And so they tell the steward about how they found the money with the grain. Now, notice what the steward says. It's so easy to look over this. And the steward replied, peace to you. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in the sacks for you. And then he says these words, I received the money. And he brings Simeon out. You see, the, the brothers expect punishment, but they're told to keep the original cash. Why? Because the servant says, I have the money. It's been paid for. I don't know what you're talking about. You see, the reason they didn't owe anything is because somebody else paid for the original grain. And that, brothers and sisters, that is grace. When someone pays the price for, for you and I, when we owe something and we don't pay it, someone pays it on our behalf. And, and then they receive more graces, Simeon is returned to them, and then the grace continues to be poured out in the next couple verses, 24 to 34. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkey's father, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him on the, to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the man of whom you spoke? Is he alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. 
And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? God, be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. Can you imagine that reunion? And he sought a place to weep. He entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. And they served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement, and portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with them. This is remarkable. Instead of being treated like spies, the brothers are now being treated like the guests of honor. They receive water to wash their feet. Their donkeys are fed. They're given an audience with Joseph, and he speaks kindly to them. These men who are starving from a famine, they're given a feast to eat. They've probably been eating grain for years. And now they're given this feast, but there's more. Look at the end of verse 34 and be blown away. And they drank and were merry with him. See, here is Joseph joyfully hanging out with his brothers, although they still don't know it's him. Brothers who 20 years ago had left Joseph for dead. And if that's not amazing enough, here's the most remarkable thing of all. Something so amazing, I would have never figured it out for myself. Something I discovered while reading one of the commentaries on Genesis from James Montgomery Boyce. Boyce says this, The interesting thing is that the brothers enjoyed the benefit of Joseph's affection without actually knowing who he was. And what does that mean? It means that while we're still stuck in our hidden sin, God is gracious to us. It means that even though the brothers are still bums, even though they're still lying to their dad, even though they're still looking out for themselves, even though they're still hiding their sin, God is working through Joseph to show grace to them. You know, are they making progress towards dealing with their hidden sin? Yeah, they are, but it's slow progress. And I want you to notice something. Stu, will you go back to the very last slide? I think that will give it to us. One more, I'm sorry. There you go. Notice, oh no, and they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. What did Joseph do? He sat them in order of their birth. These guys are like, how in the world is this possible? How would he know that, that to see this from, from the oldest to the youngest? But what does he do with the youngest one? He gives the youngest one, Benjamin, five times the amount of food that he gave to everyone else. What is he doing? Is he showing favoritism to Benjamin? Some would say yes. I think it's a test for the brothers. 
I think it's a test to see whether the brothers have gotten over their jealousy. I think it's a test to, to, to see whether uh, that, that, that they're going to be upset or not upset. We don't see how this whole thing, thing plays out right now, but, but the jealousy is what got him thrown into the pit, sold into slavery, and ultimately sold to Egypt was because of the brothers' jealousy. That was the initial sin that started the whole thing off. And now God, working through Joseph, is going to see whether these guys have ultimately learned their lesson. And yet, in the midst of, of, of us growing and, and learning and pulling away from our hidden sin, while the progress may be slow, grace is still available. And that, brothers and sisters, that is exactly what God does for us. God gives grace to those who are still deep in their sin. And what is amazing is that God gives grace in the midst of our sin to those who don't even know him. You see, every one of us, those who deeply love Jesus, those who come into this room who say they love Jesus but are really just giving him lip service, those who come into this room because their boyfriend or girlfriend has drugged them to this place and you're actually indifferent to God, even those who come into this room who reject him outright, they are all recipients of what theologians call is common grace. Jesus speaks of common grace in Matthew chapter 5. He says this, For God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What common grace is, is that God pours his kindness out on those who love him with all of their heart, soul, and mind, and he does the same thing on those who don't. And friends, we need to understand something very important. God owes us absolutely nothing. He doesn't even owe us an opportunity to be saved and spend eternity with him in heaven. You see, from the very beginning of time, humanity has rejected God's goodness and has sinned against him. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they had absolutely everything. They were living in a perfect place where there was no death, no sin, no disease, no pain, no suffering. Every need that they had was met, and they were in perfect union with God, yet that wasn't enough for them. And God gives them an option. He gives them a choice. He puts a choice in the midst of the garden, and he says, will you love and obey me, or will you love yourself and obey yourself? What will you choose? Because true love always requires an option to love or not to love. And given the choice, they chose disobedience. And you know what God could have done? God would have been completely just to eradicate them. He didn't need them. He didn't create Adam and Eve. He didn't create us because he was lonely. God is perfectly fulfilled in, in, in the unity of the Trinity. He doesn't need any of us. God, God could have wiped them off the face of the planet without thinking about it. And instead, what is he? He is gracious to them. He clothes them, he protects them, he provides for them, even in their disobedience. And since that time, humanity, you and I, we have been sinning against the holy God of the universe. And some of us in this room have chosen to reject God 
yet God continues to pour out his blessing upon you. The late pastor and theologian Donald Gray Barnhouse speaks directly to this issue. It's a long quote, but I want to read it for you. He says this, You are not a believer in Christ, and yet you are still out of hell. That is the grace of God. You are not in hell, but you are on earth in good health and prosperity. That is the common grace of God. The vast majority of us are living in comfortable homes or apartments. That is common grace. You are not fleeing as refugees along the highways of a country that has been desolate by war. That is common grace. You come home from your job, and your child runs to meet you in good health and in good spirits. That is common grace. You are able to put into your, your hand in your pocket and give that same child a little bit of money for allowance. That is common grace to have that much abundance. You go into your home and sit down to a good meal. That is common grace. And on the day that you hear these words, there are more than a billion and a half members of the human race who will go to sleep without enough to satisfy their hunger. And that you have enough is common grace. You do not deserve it. And if you think you deserve anything at all from God beyond the wrath which you have so richly earned, you merely show your ignorance to spiritual principles. Why is God so kind and so patient to those who hate him? The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, after giving an extensive list of sinful behaviors, which I will spare us the details of. This is what Paul says. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, that whole list that I spared you from. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself? How many of us fall into that category? That you will escape the judgment of God or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Why does God pour out common grace? Why is he so patient? Why is he so kind? Because he loves us and desires for us to repent. And so it was with Joseph. Joseph loved his brothers even though they sinned greatly against him. But they didn't sin just against Joseph. They've sinned against God. And God worked through the kindness of Joseph to help them to see their hidden sin and put them on a path to repentance, one that would restore them not only to their brother, but ultimately to the holy God of the universe. And if you are here today and you have yet to repent of your sin and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, today is the day of salvation. You, you do not know whether God will be gracious to you in the next hour or the next day or the next week. That's why he says, why do you presume upon God's kindness? Why do you wake up in the morning and think everything's going to be just fine? And so if you are here today and you have yet to repent of your sins and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior... Don't leave this place without bowing your head, crying to God, confessing your sins, turning away from that sin in repentance and turning towards Jesus in faith, 
Call out to him while you still have time. May this day be the day that God removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. May this day be the day that God takes your sins, which are though as scarlet, and makes them as pure as snow. And if you are here today, and you have repented of your sin, and received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, yet you are battling with hidden sin, today is the day that you need to confess it to God, that you need to turn from that sin in repentance. Today is the day that you need to find a, a, a trusted friend and confess it to him or her so that they might hold you accountable to change and do whatever is necessary to begin living a life that is no longer in bondage but free. Are there wrecked relationships in your life Today is the day to make those wrecked relationships right. Is there pride that keeps you from, from fixing those wrecked relationships? Today is the day to crucify your pride. Are there things that, that you are going to go and do this afternoon that you know that are wrong? Today is the day for that to stop. Do not presume upon the kindness of God. He has been so incredibly gracious to us. Believers, do not stay in the midst of your sin. Yes, it's been forgiven. It's been nailed to the cross with Jesus. You're going to go to heaven, but your life is a shell of what it ultimately can be because God wants to use you in powerful ways, and hidden sin will always, always short-circuit that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are a good and holy God. You are the good and holy God. And Father, I want to pray for those in this room today who have yet to repent of their sins and receive you as Lord and Savior. I pray today, Heavenly Father, that that would be the day that, that Lord, you uh, reveal yourself clearly uh, to them. And Lord, I, I, I say this not in 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 meanness or cruelty or anything, but Heavenly Father, your word tells us that people are blinded to the truth of your word. And Lord, I pray that today that you would remove the blindness from their eyes. That Lord, that you would gently draw them to yourself. Lord, that you would help them to uh, repent of their sin and receive your Son as Lord and Savior. And Lord, for those in this room who have done just that, who have repented and received Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, if they are like me, there is still sin that they battle with. I pray today, Heavenly Father, that Lord, that you would uh, empower us to crucify that sin, that we would not be content with living a life that is hidden, sins that are, are lurking to be in bondage, Heavenly Father. Would you free us? Put someone in our life that can, we can confess to and, and we can be held accountable to. Set us free, Heavenly Father. Help us to make things right. And it's through your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we pray?